So our passage this morning is from Luke 5. Um, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make, a, make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. If you have been coming regularly for a while, you know we're in the middle, or in fact we're at the end of a series looking at the different characteristics or the different faces of Jesus. And today we are wrapping up the series. We're going to pull it all together. We're looking specifically at the second part of Jesus at the party of the house of Levi or Matthew. Last week, you'll know that Kyle talked about the label friend of sinners, Jesus' friend of sinners. And you'll, if you remember, you'll know that he joked about me talking about Jesus being a glutton and a drunkard. And in fact, even though the title of the sermon today is Bridegroom, that is the answer. But the accusation that's leveled at Jesus is, in fact, that he is a drunkard and a glutton. The accusation is being leveled here, but in fact, it's unpacked uh, further in, in uh, Luke 7.34, where this whole party scene is brought to Jesus as an act of an accusation. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. That sort of wraps up what's going on at this party at the house of Levi. Here is Jesus, the guest of honor, Invoking the wrath of the religiously serious. Jesus, the house at the house of a swindler and traitor at a private party with small-time crooks. And this is the dialogue that's going on in the passage that we're reading, because they've just said, What are you doing hanging out with these people? And then the Pharisees say to him in this dialogue, Get serious about your religion, Jesus. Don't be religiously half-hearted. Don't be religiously half-hearted. And Jesus responds to them, don't be religiously clueless. The Pharisees saying, don't be religiously half-hearted. And Jesus responding, don't be religiously clueless. And that's how we're going to unpack this passage. We're going to look at what the Pharisees were actually saying and why they were saying it. And then we're going to unpack what Jesus' response to them was. So let's jump in to the first section. The Pharisees saying, don't be religiously half-hearted. Now, Jesus, as we said, had just told the Pharisees that he'd come to heal the spiritually sick, implying, of course, that their self-righteousness uh, excluded them from being healed. And that's, of course, an ironic comment. And the Pharisees, in verse 33, respond by saying, what sort of rabbi are you? They say to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. What sort of rabbi are you? Why don't you get serious about your religion? Why don't you pray and fast like John, 
like the Pharisees, like the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees. Now, we know that Jesus does, in fact, pray. All through the New Testament, we see Jesus going off and praying in, uh, quietly with the Father, in fellowship with the Father. In fact, you would say that his ministry is a ministry that's grounded in prayer. So what they mean here when they say, go and uh, fast and pray. So the praying here is a reference to the praying that accompanies fasting. Fasting that's done and praying that's done in public. And you know from other stories in the New Testament of Jesus actually criticizing those people who do it ostentatiously, who stand up and say, uh, Pharisees who are self-righteous in the extreme, standing up and making grand claims in their prayers and in their fastings, putting uh, makeup on and making themselves look disheveled so that their fasting becomes apparent. But that wasn't the only way it was done. It was done appropriately as a form of fasting and a, and a, and a form of prayer, even though it was done publicly. And we need to sort of step back here and have a, a deeper look at this tradition. We associate Pharisees. When I say the word Pharisee and you hear about the New Testament, the first place you go to is these were the bad guys. These were the religious failures. These are the ones that were doing everything wrong. But that's not the whole story about the Pharisees. In fact, you might say the Pharisees really need a new PR person. It's certainly true that many of the Pharisees were uh, self-righteous. They certainly were the religious power brokers of the time, but not all of them were. In fact, they were very devout. They were very serious in their faith, and they expected the same of their disciples. Not just the Pharisees and their disciples, but also John's disciples. And if you're wondering in this passage, hang on, the Pharisees are the baddies, Jesus is the goodies. Uh, clearly, this is just an attack on the Pharisees. This same dialogue occurs in Matthew as well. But in the book of Matthew... Instead of the Pharisees coming up and saying, "Why are you fasting and why aren't you fasting and praying?" It's actually John's disciples that come up and say, "Why aren't you fasting and praying?" Now, both of them, in Matthew, it's John's disciples coming up and saying, "Why aren't you fasting and praying like we do and the Pharisees do?" And in this chapter, it's the Pharisees coming up and saying, "Why don't you pray and fast?" like John's disciples and we do. So clearly, both of them, who were very serious about their religion, came to Jesus and asked the question, get serious about your religion. Why are you so half-hearted? Why are you not taking the, the practices of the faith seriously? Now, being a rabbi was a very serious religious business. Rabbis interpreted the law and added to, to the the Talmud and the Mishnah. Now, Talmud and Mishnah are just big, fancy Hebrew words, which mean the oral tradition, which was actually written down, and the teachings. And of course, we hear about that many times in the New Testament too. And again, when we hear about it, it's bad press. Why are you making all these overly religious rules? But there's a place in which that's needed. You see, you can't take the ideas that are presented and not create paradigms that make them make sense. If you, in a sense, these rabbis would take new ideas and patch holes in the understanding of the law. For example, the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy. 
well, that's very great, but it's quite highfalutin. It's quite a big concept. How do you actually keep the Sabbath holy? How do you do that? Well, as the rabbis writing in the Talmud and passing on the oral tradition in the Mishnah who sort of explain how to do that. And many of you may know that by, adding, by patching those holes, by adding the clarification to that, you can only walk 2,000 cubits. Now, they did that by taking passages in Levi, which was about how big a town was, and applying it to not working on the Sabbath. And they said, you could only go 2,000 cubits, or about a kilometer away from where you live on the Sabbath. And that was the way they applied the concept practically to where they live. And in fact, if you look at the more uh, religious practicing Jews of our time, you'll see they buy houses within a kilometer of a synagogue so that they can walk there on the Sabbath. So in a sense, rabbis took religion very seriously and they looked at the Old Testament scriptures and they interpreted them, they patched the holes, they provide a structure to understand them. And they also poured new things sometimes into the law, good practices. For example, they added the teaching into the Mishnah of fasting and praying. This idea of fasting and praying, we see it all through the Old Testament. We see it in Daniel, we see it in Jeremiah, where the people lamented the things weren't the way they were supposed to be. Things were ravished in the, uh, uh, the, the sin had ravished the world. And the response to that, when they're oppressed, when they're struggling, when they're burdened by their own guilt, is to fast and to pray. Now, the only fasting that's actually in the law is on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So these are added in, but they're very good practices. It's what you do. You fast so you can focus on God. You pray, you lament, you repent. These are practices that were poured into the law by rabbis to help people, again, create paradigms and practices that made sense for them. So fasting is a good idea. It's used throughout the Old Testament when repenting or mourning. And fasting is, in fact, a response to the ravages of sin in our lives. And it's worth going back and seeing how this uh, plays out, going back and looking, in a sense, to that original sin in creation. You see, when the world was made, it was made with abundance. You see that at the end of chapter 1. There's fish and birds and fruit, and go and eat whatever you want to, and everything is grand. And there's abundance everywhere. There's an economy of abundance running through everything. And then when the fall happens, when sin enters the world, God withdraws a little bit, and there's a little bit of less of God there. And we start to see what that cost looks like. And in fact, I understood this probably better listening to someone who comes from an agrarian economy, an African theologian who explained what was happening here. He talks about the, the curses you see, what happens is when God withdraws, we move from an economy of an abundance to an economy of scarcity. Things aren't available as much as they used to be. And what does that look like in an agrarian economy? You don't just wander down and pick a piece of fruit and eat it. There's not an abundance around you. All of a sudden, you're competing. You're working hard. And how do you work hard in an agrarian culture? How do you deal with scarcity in an agrarian culture? Well, if you're a male... You, you go and gather food and the sweat of your brow, the curse of the sweat of the brow. And if you're a female, you breed children in order to them to support you going forward. So those two economic acts are response to an economy of scarcity, the withdrawal of God. And we know that now. We live in an economy where God is both present, 
but also not fully present. We see the ravages of sin, the God and the not God, and we live in that place. So man experienced the sweat of labor to feed his family, the economy of scarcity. Woman experienced the pain of childbirth to produce children to support her, the economy of scarcity. And in an economy of scarcity, we of course have enmity because we're competing for resource. There are winners and losers. There's strife that enters in. And the Pharisees and John disciples, they all knew this. There was plenty to mourn and lament and repent of. Sin ravaged their world. Romans occupied them. Romans oppressed them. They were waiting for a Messiah. Things weren't the way they were supposed to be. Serious religious people, serious rabbis in this time, they fasted and they prayed. They repented and they lamented. They said, things aren't good, God. We're waiting for you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The song we sang earlier today. The accusation here to Jesus is, real rabbis are serious about the brokenness of this world. Real rabbis are serious uh, about what's going wrong. Real rabbis lament and pray and fast. And Jesus' response is what we'll get to. The accusation here is, don't be religiously half-hearted. Be serious about your faith. And Jesus responds with the statement, don't be religiously clueless. Don't be religiously clueless. Now, firstly, we see in Jesus' response, he does not say, don't pray and fast. We see, actually, in verses 34 and 35, Jesus answered, can you make friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But a time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. So in fact, Jesus doesn't say fasting and praying is not important. Lamenting and repenting is not important. He doesn't say that mourning isn't a part, a prayer for mourning is not important. What he does say is it's just not the time. It's not the time. It's not the time because the bridegroom is here. A wedding is imminent. This is not the time of mourning and lament. The ravages of sin are being undone before your very eyes. There is social healing, physical healing, spiritual healing. We've seen that all through chapters 4 and 5. This is a time to celebrate. In the middle of last year, last summer, we had a wedding for Feifei and Nathaniel. And I remember you guys got out the pots and the pans, you cooked. There was a huge feast. Can you imagine holding a wedding and saying, well, we're going to have a wedding today, but we're all going to fast. It doesn't happen. You have food when you celebrate. Food is part of a celebration. And what's going on here is that the new kingdom is a promise to the return of an economy of abundance. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. He is the bridegroom. He is the Messiah. It is party time for them because Jesus is with them. Now, note this. Healing, all the healings we talked about, the physical, the spiritual, the social healing, they point to the bridegroom, they point to the Messiah, and, they, and they're a foretaste of the coming kingdom. We've said that about all of the miracle, all of the healing work, all of the kingdom-bringing work that Jesus does. They are signposts and foretastes. Signposts to him and foretastes to the coming kingdom. Same with the abundance. 
the abundance, the eating and the drinking and the celebrating. This points again to the bridegroom, the foretaste of the coming kingdom. Now, it's not as familiar with us because we live in the West. We have full abundances everywhere. We don't realize that that is actually a foretaste. The blessings that we have, the abundance that we experience is a foretaste of the coming kingdom, which Christians in many other parts of the world don't know. Uh, Christians in Kiev, Christians in much of Africa, Christians in many parts of Asia. They don't know abundance. They know this, the economy of scarcity. And in fact, we often think of these blessings as things that we've created for ourselves, but these all come from God. These are the blessings that we have are foretastes and signposts to the Messiah, whether we choose to acknowledge them or not. So Jesus is making a bigger point as he goes on in verses 36, 37, and 38, and it's confronting. It's very confronting, and he confronts uh, the Pharisees and John's disciples with this idea of don't be religiously clueless. Let me read verse 36. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch another one. Otherwise, they'll have the torn new garment, and the patch from the new one will not match the old. Now, it'd be like me getting a brand new suit. Perhaps we go out, Patty and I don't have that many suits, weddings, funerals, uh, bar mitzvahs, uh, and we, cut, we come home and I see there's, oh, there's a hole in my old jeans. Let me cut out a patch out of my new suit and sew it onto the jeans. I've just ruined the suit. And of course, the patch from the suit to the jeans looks ridiculous. And this is the point that Jesus makes. Jesus is saying to John's disciples and to the disciples of the Pharisees, I'm not going to provide some Mishnah or Talmud patch job. That's not my role as a rabbi here. Jesus is saying, I can't be patched in to any other religion. I can't be patched in to your your faith in science or your faith in your works or humanitarian works. He is making an exclusive claim here about himself. Don't patch me in to whatever God or faith or worldview you have. Don't just put me on, cut me out and, and apply me to your world. It doesn't work that way. I'm making an exclusive claim, he's saying, about himself. And then we read on in verses 37 and 38 with the new wineskins. No one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. Now, what happened was when you put new wine, well, the wineskins were basically literally skins that were sewn together and tied off at the top, and a new skin has elasticity in it. But old skins become hard and cracked. So you put the new wine into the new wineskins, and as the wine ferments, and changes in size, and expands and contracts, and as the new tannins get mixed in, then the wine skin sort of, and the wine itself, sort of solidify together. They sort of become stable together. But if you tip out the wine from the old wineskin and put in the new wineskin, the wineskin's hard and cracked, and as soon as you put the new wineskin in and it starts to move and change, the wineskin just bursts open. And Jesus is trying to say something Again, which is very confronting here, he's saying, I'm not going to pour myself into 
uh, pour a few new requirements into the Mishnah and the Talmud. I'm not going to just add a little bit on to what you already have. And Jesus said, I won't pour myself into someone committed to old ways. Jesus requires a radical and complete change of life orientation. How you view your religion, how you view your science, how you view your humanitarian work needs to be framed through his lens. He is requiring exclusive commitment from us. So you see these two things here, very important. He's making the claim, that an exclusive claim about himself. And he is making an exclusive require. He is asking an exclusive commitment from us. And he goes on in verse 39 with a warning. He's saying, don't become fat and happy in a non-gospel life. Let me read it. And no one after drinking old wine wants new, for they say the old wine is better. And what they mean there is not literally the old wine is better. What they mean is you're used to drinking the old wine. Of course you think it's better. It doesn't require any work. It's easy to drink old wine. Drinking new wine is harder because you've got to become a new wine skin. You've got to change. Old wine is familiar and easy to drink. It's the Kool-Aid of religion. We are constantly required to become new, to be renewed, to be changed. Jesus responds to disciples or the Pharisees of the Pharisees and the disciples of John by saying, listen, don't be religiously clueless. Recognize me as the bridegroom and the Messiah. So we conclude then by asking the question, is Jesus drunk, glutton, or bridegroom at a wedding feast? Now the bridegroom reference which he is claiming to be the bridegroom, points forward to Revelation, that very famous passage in Revelation 19, 7 to 8. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And pure. So you're probably thinking, ah, this is the story of the bridegroom, the feast of the wedding feast of the lamb. And then suddenly you say, wait a minute, where did this lamb piece come in here? So in this story, in this series, we've talked about Jesus' as bridegroom, bringer of celebration. Jesus as the healer, healer of social problems, physical problems, spiritual problems. Jesus as curse remover, returning creation to an economy of abundance. Now many of you, by the way, even though we grow up in the West and are not familiar with the scarcity, of maybe of depravity of food, we do understand scarcity. We understand scarcity perhaps in not being fully employed or being full, uh, employed to the fullest extent that we want to be or in ways that are satisfying. Or perhaps we have relationships which don't fully meet their potential. There's a scarcity in our relationship doesn't meet the fullness that we hope for. Or perhaps as parents, we see deficits or problems or ways that we can't come along. So there are ways we experience uh, scarcity and ways we can hope for that economy of abundance to come. So Jesus as healer, Jesus as curse remover, Jesus as bringer on of abundance, bringer of celebration. And we get to this term lamb. You see, the disciples are told, as, as Kyle referenced earlier today, that they are going to mourn. 
They are going to need to pray and fast. They are going to need to lament. They are going to need to repent and to, to wait on God again as we wait on God again for the second coming. Jesus as lamb, as saviour, is the one who prepares us as the bride, who gives us clean garments, forgives the sin we commit, removes the sinful heart within us. So as we conclude the series, we see the healer, the curse remover, the saviour, the lamb. But as a bridegroom and a lamb, he also makes some radical claims that we've seen today. He is exclusive and he expects us to be exclusive. You can't patch Jesus in a life devoted to something else and he won't pour himself into a vessel not willing to constantly become new. The message here is Jesus is everything, but it also is, it's all for Jesus or it's nothing at all. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we have looked at the many faces of Jesus, the many roles he played, the many ways that he revealed you to us, as we come to the end of this series, we are confronted by the fact that we need to take this, all of it. We need to submit to it. We need to commit to it. We need to recognize that Jesus is claiming to be exclusive and he wants us, calling us to be exclusive. Father, we, we know that we don't always get it right, that we fail, that we need his blood to watch over us, to make our clothes clean. And we look forward to that wedding feast. We look forward in lament and in repentance. We also look forward to that time of celebration, that time of returning to abundance, that time every healing takes place. Those tears are wiped away. The fullness of the kingdom. We thank you for who Jesus is. Help us to embrace that fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.